0: welcome b-movie fans to another b-movie interview i'm paul and joining me is greg deliso and he's here to talk about his upcoming film hectic knife greg welcome to
1: the show hey man thank you so much for having me
0: thank you for joining yep anytime so what first inspired you to become a filmmaker
1: uh i saw jurassic park when i was six in the theater and that was the whole classic bitten by the movie bug thing that happens i just uh I practically don't remember anything else that happened in my life before that. It was just, I might as well have just, like, been in Plato's cave, and then they opened a screen, and then I just saw Jurassic Park in front of me. Like, it was this amazing thing. And, uh, you know, obviously what was cool about that happening is that Jurassic Park was so big that it was this, like, cultural phenomenon, so they would have these big behind-the-scenes, like, making of things on TV. And I remember there was one with James Earl Jones. It was, like, an hour long, and I was only about six or seven, but I would watch that all the time, like, just as much as the movie. And I became really fascinated by um, just at that, that age, by the whatever authorship kind of meant in the movies. I didn't really understand, but, you know, it's like obviously somebody was getting to play around and make this stuff. So I just was obsessed with understanding uh, who that was and what that meant and everything. And it just sort of rolled from there. And I got lucky, too. I had, um, you know, my grandparents are kind of like you know quasi just uh you know amateur movie buffs and love old movies and were always showing me uh, everything from Chaplin to tremors so i was i was always kind of like inundated with with all kinds of fun movies and stuff and my my parents are too and um so it's just always part of my life but jurassic park was definitely like the thing that was like holy cow this is this is this opened me up to a whole new reality at, at just six years old
0: Nice, definitely. I feel like Jurassic Park, Star Wars, and Jaws are like yes. movies that seem to inspire so many people, I would say. I'm exactly. going to make my own film.
1: Yeah, it's like you were either a Star Wars kid, and then if you were born, I was born in 86, so I align with being a Jurassic Park kid, basically. It's exactly, you're totally, it's the perfect generational time. It's like right there, yeah.
0: Definitely. Yep. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, Hectic Knife? What's the uh, general plot and idea behind the film?
1: <laughs> uh, well, um, as far as the plot, I don't know if I, I, I assume that you've seen it, so you might know why I'm uh, kind of laughing a little bit because I don't know that there is a ton of a plot. I mean, plot is a word to be used loosely here. It's more of a crazy comedy with lots of gags and meta jokes and weird stuff happening. But I mean, for the nuts and bolts of a plot, you know, you got you got your superhero a hectic knife and he's kind of this weird vigilante and he's got these superpowers but you can't really tell exactly like what they are all the time but they kind of you know he's got them and he's he's very it's all very cartoony and comic booky and then there's a you know there's a superhero uh, so he's got his villain piggly doctor and he's going around exploding kids heads and doing evil stuff so uh they you know they it's a cat and mouse game they gotta kind of fight each other and find each other but you know really the whole thing is just a uh, fun kind of satirical um look maybe at um you know comic book movies and all these marvel movies and all these big uh dc marvel hero crazy nonsense with the two and a half hour long brooding stories and characters and all this stuff so *Hector knife is *Hector knife is really kind of just the the short sweet 80 minute uh version of that i guess in a way
0: definitely cool and having um from what i've seen it's um the comedy is very it's um it's very well done. Everything's very well-timed, and none of it seems forced. Like, I've seen films that kind of try to do what yours has done before, and it all comes off as really, like, kind of, all right, I get it. I get it and everything. Yours was great, though. I, I was laughing a lot, like, during oh, a you. lot of it. I- oh, no problem. Like, um, the dialogue was great. And just, like, the way the characters interacted acted with each other, like, they knew they were telling a joke that, like, everyone was kind of in on, but, like... um have you ever seen a film called um executive koala i have not actually no it's one of them this really bizarre um japanese film about this guy who um he's basically a six foot tall koala in a um in a t- in a suit and yeah, right. just everyone just takes it as normal and everything and sure. it, it's just the, it kind of reminded me of like uh your film where everything's like it's bizarre but it's so part of their world that it's just like you wouldn't notice it. And it's, I, I really like the way, the, the way it went.
1: Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate you saying that. I, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: No problem. So uh, what first inspired the idea for the film?
1: Uh, well, it, it happened uh, kind of on a lark in a way. I mean, you know, I always wanted to make movies. That's always the dream. And I had, um, I was living in New York City and I'm from uh, Detroit and that's where I live now. But um, I was living in New York City, and I had gone to film school there. And my uh, my other friend from high school, Peter Litvin, was also living out there, and we ended up living together. And uh, Pete, um, you know, he's my partner on this whole thing. It's just as much, you know, Huggy is just as much his, his baby as it is mine. And it really was a totally co you know creation. The whole thing is it's ours, and um, you know, it was just the two of us working on the entire thing together. And that's it. Basically, started because Pete and I were just uh making these like silly weird little art projects I mean, he was um a musician first that's how i met him we went to high school together and i became a fan of his band and uh i just kind of wanted to like do music videos for him you know it's a natural fit it's like the the filmmaker kid and the musician kid and they just kind of team up and they help each other and that's what it was and so we stayed acquaintances and then you know when when we were out in new york together um you know i was living on his couch so like if you see hectic knife um where Link, when he moves into his, quote, room and he just throws the comics on the wall, that was actually my real uh, bed, and I didn't have, like, a a fourth wall. It was just an open living room, and I lived there. And then the couch that was, like, adjacent to that, the one that's standing up on its end, we kind of just did the couch thing because it was kind of just because it was weird, but also because we needed the space because, like, the room was so small and there was just a couch in there. So we were just like, well if we flip it up, we can have room to shoot some stuff like in this little corner. So it kind of just made sense is more practical than anything else. But uh, that was my living space. And we were doing that. We were just, I was living there and I was, you know, was like in my mid twenties and having fun. And um, you know, Pete and I were making these little short films. They're just really weird things, but none of the shorts that we were doing um, could have developed in anything. They were too odd. Like it would just be something called like garlic bag. And then it would just be like a bag of garlic hanging from the ceiling and the background's all black. And then he's got like a princess toadstool costume and just making weird sounds or something. And it's like four minutes long. And there's nothing you can do with that. It's not like you can, you know, put that in Sundance and then say, we're going to make the feature out of the garlic movie. You know, not, that, that's not a reality. But with hectic knife, it was the first of these little shorts that we were making that actually seemed like, Oh, I mean at the very least uh, the very base of it, uh, this is a character meaning like, there could be other characters, there could be a villain, this character's obviously, you know, sort of a vigilante thing, whatever that means to us at the time, you know, the very infancy of it, whatever that means, so, like, he'll fight bad guys, like, whatever that means, and it kind of developed organically, it was, um, from the beginning, it was never intended to actually be a movie, and it was never something that we sat down and, like, wrote from page 0 to 100, and then shot over 30 days, instead, it was very uh, organic, like I say, so we're we would uh, once we sort of had the idea, we started out and we actually made a short film out of the little hectic knife idea that has no dialogue. And then that we decided, well, maybe we'll it'll be a web series. And so we started shooting the second episode. This is actually about all the way back in 2010. We started shooting the second episode for this web series. And by the time we finished shooting the second episode, we had so much footage and we liked what we were doing so much. We kind of just like nixed the whole web series idea and it just became a movie. So. In the final 82-minute movie that you see that was done six years later, um, there's only like two or three shots that sort of existed from these original shorts and this original stuff that we did way back when. But once we started shooting, I'd say around the third week or so, like a month into it, and we had done this like quasi-episode two, whatever you want to call it, thing, um, that was when we sort of knew it was a movie, and it took off from there. We started shooting one day a week and taking the writing very seriously, and we ended up writing – you know, most of what, what's actually in the movie. like I said, there's no like document that is script one through a hundred, but we did write, you know, pretty much all of it, but we wrote it as we went and it kind of rolled from there, but that's how it all started. It was kind of an odd, uh, odd beginning.
0: Definitely cool. It's, um, kind of an interesting way to go about it. Like a little untraditional, but definitely cool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, what would you say is the, uh, was the uh, biggest challenge of making um hectic knife?
1: Uh, never having any money. <laughs> um, and yeah. it just being, two of us. I mean, you know, on IMDb, you know, it's listed I think as the budget is fifteen thousand. I think that's true that's definitely true as far as like during the first five years, that was that fifteen thousand is basically just like the cumulative amount that we spent. So never at any given point did we actually have fifteen thousand dollars like in our hands to then go and hire people and make something. It was just like, oh I have, you know, we have access to the money we save we have 500 700 bucks at the most uh this week we're gonna you know hire two actors pay them 100 bucks for the day or whatever it may more than that and then we already have some props and stuff and then we'll just go shoot and it's going to be a tiny crew and we'll get that done and we did that for 15 weeks in a row and so the 15k that's on imdb kind of represents like i'd say the first 90 percent of the whole production Um, Up to this point, it's including promotion and including sort of the whole monster of it all. I'm talking about like getting artwork done and putting on our own screenings and all these things. I would say it's more like a $30,000 like endeavor between the two of us, Uh, but you know, spending that much, it's like it, like I say, it never, at most, it amounted to like each of us spending around two or 3,000 of our own money throughout a whole year at any given time, because again, no one ever said like, here's a check for 20 grand, go make a movie. It was more just, here's whatever scraps of money we have access to in our lives as we do our freelance work and save money and just try to exist, and then we'll put that into the movie. So, um, you know, obviously, I think in a certain way, like as I described um, before, you know, the, the whole process, instead of being a script and going week to week, like, I think that helped the movie itself because it allowed, you know, I was only 24 when we started and Pete was only 25, and it allowed us to, like, learn how to structure the thing make a movie like you know it's like i kind of put the rough cut of the movie together quickly but then um at the point that the rough cut was done it was like an hour and 50 minute long rough cut and it took like three years or so to go down and we cut off like almost an hour out of that rough cut and added 20 minutes again and that was all like learning curve in the sense that it was like in my mind i was thinking you know we're doing something that's like out there and kind of weird, uh, you know, anti-comedy meta, whatever you want to call it. So we don't, we're not, we can't make something that's like 90 minutes. Even it's gotta be 82 and quick and clean. You know, it's gotta have some motion to it because I didn't, I knew we weren't, you know, no characters are changing. So there's nothing for uh, an audience member to like latch onto and then cry and learn a lesson. So I was thinking like, I don't want to overstay our welcome. Let's, you know, make this. So that was all, you know, getting it to that point and getting it sort of, uh, feeling like it had the right um, movement and quickness to it and and flow despite not having much of a plot. It was a big learning curve. So it's like a, I started when I was 24. I think there's a lot of arrested development, but it took five years t- for the whole process to kind of go through and shape it into a movie. And that had to do with, like I said, both not having money, but also, you know, just learning as you go and learning on it on. It's like, Pete coming from the, the music side was invaluable to us because you know, I'm I'm I didn't like I didn't have anything to do with the soundtrack except for I got to be a the first fan of it and listen to it as it got created and give Pete my, you know, two cents as he asked for it. But it was really just us sitting in a studio and him I would be like, Hey, let's do surf rock here and then he would pick up a guitar and play drums and make a ninety second surf rock track and then he'd mix it in I mean it was like totally you know genius level incredible stuff and i was just blown away and it was my, it was really fun but i'm like saying this because we you know with that with pete having that background we saved you know 10 20 150,000 million dollars on uh soundtrack on mixing on uh, adr which was a process that um if you know if your listeners don't know adr is additional dialogue recording so that's if you're dialogue track does not sound good in its original recording when you shoot it on set you have to re-record it with the actor in a booth so that it'll sound clean so we did that for 80 percent of the movie and um you know it took two to three years to track down all the actors again and and uh you know record them and have him learn how to edit syllable to syllable every you know every little bit to get it to fit their their lips right and all those kind of things so um You know, it was it was such a long uh, process, but it's also just like invaluable looking back because, you you know, you put yourself through a whole film school kind of thing and you come out at the end of it with a movie. Um, So it's like fun. But, yeah, I mean, definitely um, it's the kind of thing where you like go through this your first time and then you hope to God you like never have to do it again in this process because, you know, I'd love to be able to like have money to start with and, you know, like plan with money in mind, not like, you know, planning just, oh, I have 30 bucks to spend on props, let's, like, you know, cross that off. It's just, like, you know, you hope to get to another level. But uh, it was definitely fun. Um, it was definitely, you know, frustrating as at many times because of those sort of uh, hindrances. But, um, you know, I, would, I wouldn't change it for the world either.
0: Definitely cool. So it's kind of like it, it evolved over time and just kind mm-hmm. of um, – yeah. it's definitely cool. Like when uh, – plus, yeah, it took you guys, what, eight years to make it or
1: five, – five. five. Five years took to-, to make and it was essentially a six-year – Project production. I mean, we're in year eight now because it's 2010. The Blu-ray just came out, but you know, we we finished and signed with Troma, um I think in the the winter of 16, so put it like right at the cross between five and six years. So we we're kind of like done with the movie at the five year mark, and then signed with Troma in 16. So it's also weird. It's like the the life of a small indie movie that doesn't have like a theatrical. It's like if you look on IMDb, you know, we sort of came out in. Uh, quote-unquote, you know, July of 2016, because that was our first screening, but the Blu-ray is not even coming out until uh, the winter now of 2018, and uh, Film Threat, I was, like, honored, they put us on their top ten best list of 2017, and nothing, we didn't even release anything in 17, and it's just in the sense that, like, the life of these little tiny indie movies like this, it's like, when did it come out? Well, it, it came out in 16, but it's still kind of, like, coming out in a way, and it's, you know, there's still new things, and the Blu-ray is sort of, like, the final thing that comes out, so, you know, it, that's, it's, I know it's kind of confusing in a way, but I hope that makes sense.
0: It's like post-production never really ends.
1: Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, so this is being, uh, distributed through, uh, Troma? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, that's pretty awesome. It, it definitely had, like, kind of a Troma sort of feel to it, I've, uh, watched, way more trauma films than i probably should have so i definitely um can
1: appreciate that yeah man oh it's interesting I, I guess the screener that i sent you probably didn't have the trauma logo up front did it um i don't
0: recall i, I remember it said in the email you sent me uh, it said it said i um, distributed by third trauma but which is okay. always cool <laughs> yeah yeah cool so um i know you mentioned uh jurassic park a little bit earlier but um what qualities do you think make a great film, and could you give some examples of films that you would personally consider great?
1: Oh man, well, uh, I mean, my, you know, I to me, what's the difference between favorite and great? I mean, you know, the, the AFI puts together a list of the hundred best movies ever made, but what is what does that mean? That's you know, what 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 does that literally mean? And, and then Roger Ebert puts together a book, and I and I actually like when he rightfully says in the front of his his books the words like the hundred great movies. He specifically says, he's like, these are movies that I fucking love and they're great and that's what it means. Like, it's I'm not saying these are the best things that ever existed. You know, what what metric does that exist? What does that even mean? So for me, it's just kind of what what's personal to you. I mean, if your favorite movie ever made is uh, Caddyshack, then who is to tell you that Caddyshack is not um, artistically way better than Citizen Kane? I mean, if it affects you that much and it resonates with you and you can actually dissect it and deconstruct it and, and understand, uh, you know, all the, all the comedy that's happening and the photography and all, all the, you know, everything that's happening in Caddyshack, then, uh, you can own that as much as, uh, you know, any film community can own 2001 space odyssey as the best thing or raging bowl. But, uh, no, I don't, I also don't mean to try to start some kind of like class war either. It's like, I, I like all kinds of stuff. And my, my favorite movies, um, my three favorites are signs, American movie. And, um, Raising Arizona. Uh, so my favorite directors are Zemeckis, um, uh, Spielberg, Joe Dante, Rob Reiner, Amy Heckerling, Spike Lee, Scorsese, um, Penny Marshall, um, uh, and then uh, documentary guys like Errol Morris and Chris Smith and uh Berlinger and Znansky. So um, that those are the things that has resonated most with me. I mean, my top ten would also include uh, Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones. Back to the Future 1 and 2 for sure, uh, a movie called Last Night by Don McKellar, uh, Forrest Gum, Field of Dreams. Um, so as you can see, I'm also pretty um, mainstream in a certain way. Kind of, uh, you know, it's like a lot of those I listed were are pretty fairly big Hollywood um, gloss that came out between, um, say, 1980 and like 2000 or so. But at the same time, um, I have always found um, you know, some of the highest uh, art to be happening in that uh, realm. You know, I, I, for me back to the future, you know, I, I like citizen game, much is nice guy. I was just kind of picking on it for fun because everyone knows it's like, you know, the best thing or whatever, but yeah, it's like, I, I would honestly rather watch uh, back to the future than I would the Godfather or psycho. And i also on a deeply artistic um, level uh, back to the future. Absolutely resonates with me a lot uh, deeper and, and more so than the Godfather does or, um, or Casablanca or whatever like celebrated, um, you know, thing you want to talk about. So I definitely think it's relative. And I think, um, you know, whatever, whatever you like and whatever speaks to you is the thing. And for me, um, you know, I'm a comedy guy. I love comedies. I love documentaries. I love the idea that movies can like make you, um, endlessly interested in something that you wouldn't be before. Like I was just watching the movie Moneyball yesterday, again, with my buddy. And we were just talking about how amazing it is that it's like, why i'm not a baseball fan i didn't know anything about this why would i ever care about like the inner baseball politics of stats and whatever it's like who cares at all but it's a i think it's a great movie and i'm like amazed by its detail and its nuance and and the way that it's able to dramatize something that is should be basically undramatizable if that's a word um so it's it's uh, i think it's interesting you know they the movies have this weird power to do that kind of stuff. And I'm always uh, fascinated by it. And I just love all kinds of stuff though. It's like my, if I had to pick like a top uh, 10 or 50, it would be, you know, there'd be just as many documentaries and romantic comedies and, um, you know, weird eclectic uh, cult stuff and whatever else on there. It's kind of a big mix and just whatever kind of speaks to, to you, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's good to have a good diverse amount of uh, films and everything. And yeah. mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed about like films, like on the, um, like that are considered the, like, the greatest films ever made, like, I've seen, I think, most of the ones on the AFI 100, and there are a lot of ones I really like, but most of them I, I've watched them once, and I'm like, I have no real desire to watch it again.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: but it was, as, like, like you mentioned, um, Back to the Future, which I've seen, like, a thousand times, it's, like. Exactly, yeah, right.
1: And I mean, I think uh, I think people like to, you know, I think if you feel really entertained by something or laugh, I think people like to almost dismiss that as if it was just a trick or it's fluff. Or and then if something else they watch moves them to cry or to think deeply, that that's somehow like a um, more difficult emotion to get out of somebody. And I don't know if that's true. I mean, it's really hard to make somebody laugh, and it's hard to make somebody um, engaged in something that fun for almost two hours. And I think it's just as difficult and sort of interesting and uh, just as noble and artistic pursuit to try to entertain people with uh, your art and with your ability to craft fun and craft uh, these kind of things. And so when I look at a movie like back to the future, it's like, you know, obviously it's aging well, it's becoming an American classic for sure, but there's still, you know, plenty of people out there that if you put it in the same breath as the Godfather or in um, Berto D or whatever, you know, whatever Godard movie and they would, they would want to, Tell you that back to feature is somehow fluff, but I would say that. First of all, you know Godard and Coppola and all those directors, they wouldn't fucking say that because they know how hard it is to make something, and they would say, "No, man, it's it's all this. It's all e- I'm sorry to swear. I don't know if I want to swear. Oh, no. yeah, there's there's no <laughs> reasonable okay. reasonable language. Uh, yeah, man, it no, would be like it's all equal, man, and it's just as hard for you know the the crazy comedy guy to to get a laugh than it is for the you know the philosophical actor to to move someone. So I think uh, it's all you know, relative and equal. And it's just kind of what speaks to you. So, I mean, I'm kind of like, you know, there's a lot of these uh, directors and stuff. And I think a lot of people are really into like talking about, you you have to tell the kids to like celebrate the old movies and they got to watch them and they got to, you know, make sure you know your roots and all that stuff. And it's like, look, as a movie nerd, I love that stuff. And I have TCM on all day long because it's just fun to like look at stuff and look at old stuff and see how it used to be and blah, blah, blah. But, um, no, man, I mean, the kids, you know, they're going to do what they do and make new things. And I, I don't remember who it was, but I think it's either Godard or one of the, you know, one of the French guys from the new wave, you know, how those, they those old guys. But one of them said, um, you know, movies, filmmaking will never be an art, will, will not be an art form until the tools that you have to make them are as cheap as pen and paper, and he's talking about, obviously, you know, the, the that you can't ha- – an art form can't be pure if it's only controlled by the haves in the upper classes of your society. You need to have something where the whole world can add to it and speak to it. And so, um, yeah, man, I think, uh, you know, there's – nowadays especially, and there's just so many voices out there. It's like the idea of anybody now trying to say, like, well, you know <laughs> – The Godfather is the best movie ever made, or Raging Bull is like the best movie. It's just kind of like, what are you even trying to sell me, man? It's like it's, you know, I'm glad that you like it a lot, but you know, that's all there is to it. It's just, it's as simple as that, and I don't think it has any more or less like validity than Tremors, or which is a movie that I love and I watch way more than Raging Bull, even though I think Raging Bull is beautiful. You know, it's just like it's, it's all relative. So
0: definitely. Well, on the opposite end of that, even though um, even though um, you'd say it was relative, um, are there any films you find as guilty pleasures? Films that you objectively know aren't very good, but you like anyways.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that goes into the whole and I, you know, the whole thing with like the room and everything. And I guess I, sh- I guess I should mention uh, that I'm here, my whole history to the room because you know I have. I have met Tommy Wiseau. I am in the acknowledgements of the disaster artist. It was actually my idea for Greg to write the book at a Starbucks. Oh, that's um, awesome!
0: I didn't know I that.
1: fine with the room history, I grew up. You're my, now,
0: you're now an American hero in my eyes.
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll go into I'll, without uh, here. Let me so I'll just yeah to, to give a little more detail. So what happened was, um, you know, first of all, just to go backtrack. Yeah, to answer your question. Like absolutely yes. I mean. My grandpa was a lot like me, except that he never got to pursue his art. So he was 10 years old in 1940. He saw Fantasia in the theater, blew him away the same way. Dress Park blew me away. And he was like, I want to be a cartoonist for Disney. So he spent his whole life drawing, but he never got to like make a living drawing or do any kind of, he never became that. Right. But totally awesome guy. And he introduced me to a bunch of movies and that was kind of his thing. He showed me all these Disney movies and then, uh, and then, you know, movies like Tremors and Star Wars and all this other stuff. But one of the movies that he also showed me when I was a little kid was Plan 9 from Outer Space. And he made a point to, like, you know, I'm me only being, like, seven to really um, massage the idea of, like, this is unintentional, like, you know, irony, humor that is, you know, meta. There's this whole thing happening where you're, like, allowed to make fun of the crappiness of this. And it, it when you're sort of, like, if you get on the, in on that early – you're really lucky because then, you know, it's like I I grew up being a huge comedy nerd loving stuff like Seinfeld and Simpsons. And there's a whole sort of meta underbelly to a lot of that material, too, that um, I think it was really helped by, like, understanding what Plan 9 from Outer Space is and how you laugh at it and what that kind of means and what that is. And then so obviously as I got older, it's like, you know, you go through the classics. You watch Troll 2 and you watch um, – you know, Birdemic, whatever. I can't think of them now. But, you know, there's a whole, like, list of the ones that are just, like, the funniest. You know, you, obviously Mystery Science Theater 3000 is, like, the becomes the go-to. You know, you got Manos and all the famous ones. But to cut to a little further, so, okay, it's 2008 or 9 I'm in my apartment, and my roommate had just listened to Kevin Smith's modcast and they were talking about this weird cult movie that only existed in L.A. called The Room. And they were talking about it, and they were like, oh, it's got this billboard up in L.A. It's been there for, like, five years. Like, n- nobody really knows about this thing, but it's, like, this really bad movie, blah, blah. So Bree, my roommate at the time, Mark Breeze, he downloaded a torrent of the room. This was when you couldn't, like, get it anyway. It wasn't, like, a thing. It was, like, he had to go find a torrent site, get the movie. We watched it, and our room, then-roommate at the time, and it's still, a guy still in front of mine, too, and this guy named Ned Martin, he comes in the room and watches, like, five minutes of it with us and likes it a lot, he goes to his work and shows our other mutual friend, George Gross. We all went to film school together. George Gross becomes obsessed with The Room, and he calls Tommy Wiseau. Again, this is 2009. Calls Tommy Wiseau and says, hey, we need to have a screening of The Room in New York City. It had never done that before. Never been in New York before. So, he, Tommy says, come out to LA and meet with me. I still have this like funny picture of my buddy, George, like sitting in a restaurant with Tommy, like the first time, you know, this is pre um, the room, like leaving LA and becoming a thing, you know? So like George is dealing with Tommy, they get a 35 miller, uh 35 mill print. They come out to uh, New York with it. Tommy's out there. They grab David Wayne to introduce it at this theater And they tell us, George, my buddy tells us that me and Pete and our friend George or our friend Breeze should do a rap video because we were doing these goofy little uh, like rap song things just for fun. Right. Because Pete was a musician. So we did a thing called The Room Rap. It goes up online. Video Gum picks it up. and It's got about 100,000 views like overnight. And Tommy sees it the next day and he's out in New York screening the room. So we go to the first ever screening of The Room in New York hosted by our friend. Then the next day Tommy meets with us in a hotel for four hours and he tells us how he like loves the music video and it's so funny and this and that. And But he like lectures us about quality because I had just pulled clips from the movie off of like a DVD so they looked like kind of crappy. And he was like people in New York don't care about quality like only that's only for LA And because you know famously he shot the movie uh, simultaneously on 35 and HD because he's like a maniac. And uh, it was just totally crazy. You know, he was a nice guy though. He like he had Pete's CD like in his car after that and stuff. So we also became friends with Greg Sestero on MySpace. This tells you how far back it goes. Still 2009. He found us on MySpace. He liked the rap song that we had done a lot, and it was you know getting attention and things. And so he kind of just befriended us. Like we he came out to New York. Um, he we did a redo. We did a uh, what do you call it? A um. Remix of the video where he's like in it and Pete's like passing the football with Greg on the street and we're just goofing up and uh then in around 2009 or 10 I'm in a Starbucks with Greg and he starts telling me like yeah you know like this is like what kind of it was like like in real life like Tommy had a soccer ball all the time not a football but he really would like do that and I met him in this acting class and he was weird and I was kind of like Denny, like he's just telling him all this stuff and keep in mind, like the world doesn't know any of this information yet. Like the disaster artist has not existed. None of this is a thing. So I'm just like, oh, this is like really weird and interesting. Like I didn't know that. So I say to Greg at this Starbucks, I'm like, dude, you should write a book about this, like casually kind of. And he was like his eyes got kind of wide, like, you know, when you know that you've sort of planted the seed in someone, if you, if you will. And he was like, Oh, that yeah, cool. Like, okay, like that's a interesting idea. And I was like, Yeah, could it, you should just like it would be this stuff. And I kinda like plotted out, like, oh yeah, you were explaining how like you met him and like I kind of went through for an hour and I was like, this is what it should be, blah, blah, blah. So cut to like a few months later, whenever it is, I'm I start getting email updates from Greg and he's like, Oh yeah, um, like I I'm taking your thing seriously. Like I found a publisher and we're I'm gonna write the thing, blah, blah. And then I, it, you know, he started getting like really busy and I, we were doing other things. I haven't talked to him in a while, but yeah, man, the next thing I know, it was like cut to a few years later and, uh, James Franco is like, Oh, I want to like make this movie. And it's like really strange. Cause I got to me, like, to me, the room was like old news. It was like, I had already been there, done that. I didn't really care about it anymore. Um, it was this funny thing that I knew about, like George Gross, my good friend, like I said, he got interviewed in time magazine for putting on those screenings that became famous in New York where everybody was like throwing spoons and shit. Cause he started that thing and he was like, yeah, man, I mean, I got interviewed in time magazine. Tommy was, always kind of like annoying to deal with. So I'm done. I don't care about this at all anymore. Like, and George is in the acknowledgements of the book too. And he's part of the whole thing. And what ended up happening was that a guy out of Canada, who's my buddy, um, Rick Harper, um, He did a tell-all documentary about the room called Room Full of Spoons. And it got into this whole legal battle with Tommy to the point where Tommy was trying to, like, you know, basically stop the whole thing and shut it down. But um, because of my association with the documentary at all, Tommy took the room wrap down off of YouTube, which really bums me out because it had uh, 250,000 views on there. We actually – there's a book out of the UK. It's this blue paperback. Um, called uh, the definitive guide to the room, and we, the, the guy actually did a whole like two page interview with us about the whole thing and our whole story. But unfortunately, the link is down. The only thing that you can find now is there's a, another there's that um, the remix version is still online with Greg, but that thing only has like ten thousand views. It's harder to find. People don't even know about it, so it kind of bums me out that it's all like gone. And that's the other thing too is like to me because of that, I almost have like this bad taste in my mouth about Tommy because I'm like yeah whatever like screw that. And then again, like I said, cut to a year later and it's like the Golden Globe winning like movie and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like, you know, I look at the book now and I'm like, oh yeah, it's like a bestseller and like everybody cares about it. And it's like really strange to, because again, it's like, look, I didn't have anything to do with it. Like, it's not my story and Greg is a sweetheart and I, I wish him nothing but all the success and I'm super like happy for him and proud and it's really cool. But yeah, it's just weird to think that like, I, I have this tiny like, hand in the inkling of being, like, uh, if I, maybe, I mean, look, that's another thing, too, it's, like, dude, I'm sure he would have had this idea, it's not like I'm doing anything, but it's just weird to think that, like, I happen to be the patient zero that was, like, yeah, man, make a book, and then it's, like, holy shit, like, it's, the book is a movie, and, like, it's, like, really weird, it's just really strange, so, um, I mean, I've never heard what word one from, uh, Franco. I don't think he's ever, I don't know if he's ever seen the room wrap or knew about it at all. I have no idea. Like I said, it's mostly it's, you can still find it, but it's mostly gone now. So I'm kind of bummed, but, um, yeah, I've never had anything beyond that. And I don't, it's not like I really talked to Greg that much anymore at all or anything, but, um, yeah, it was fun. I mean, it's just, it's weird. And it's been really like weird and funny to, for me to just over the last 10 years of my life, like watch this thing become, what it's become because i again to me it's still this funny stupid thing that i just saw in my apartment like with my friend you know it's like that's where it started so it's, it's interesting it's very strange yeah definitely, definitely.
0: I, that's that's really interesting i never um i because i i have the um the um disaster artisan audiobook and it's one of the okay. funniest things i've ever heard so sure um yeah. and i've seen the room a bunch of times but um that that's really cool that's really definitely a cool story yeah man yeah so, um, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to create their own independent film?
1: Uh, make it, make the movie. I know that sounds stupid and like reductive, but, uh, it's the biggest, um, uh, hang up. I mean, I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper. Like, cause Lloyd Kaufman, you know, the, the president of Troma and everything, you know, iconic, uh, movie mogul director at this point, he's like in his seventies and he's, you know, he's got all these made up, made dozens of movies and cult classics and whatnot. Right. So, so you got Lloyd Kaufman. So. When I was like 16 or 17 and I dreamed of making movies, I I was the kid in Detroit that had the uh, subscription to Movie Maker Magazine and they had a cover and it was like pictures of Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and Tarantino and uh, Orson Welles and all these directors. And it said uh, this is how old they were when they made their first movie. And this is, you know, it was like Spike Lee, you know, she's got to have it, 28 years old, 1986. Like it was – and I was just looking at this thing like, oh my god, if I could ever – do that. If I could ever make a movie and, and, you know, and then the thing becomes, well, you know, you start becoming, I think immediately you become, uh, you know, if it's your obsession and if it's your whole life, you immediately, unless you're, you know, like born to, uh, unless you're Ivanka Trump or whatever, you're immediately like, Oh, how, you know, how do you do this? And, and the weird thing is in your mind, intuitively you're like, I can make a movie, but then you're like, how do I get any human being to give, a uh, 16-year-old kid or whoever it is, you know, whatever it is, a uh, million dollars to make a movie. And you start thinking, like, how the fuck is it possible that anybody gave 23-year-old P.T. Anderson, like, $20 million to go make Boogie Nights? Like, you think about that, and it's like, like, I'm 31 right now, man. I finished Technic when I was 29. When I think about a 23-year-old now, it's like a baby. Like, well, was some, you're telling me some cigar studio executive was like yeah give the give the kid money like it just seems so insane like 20 million dollars like I've never I mean I'll never see that much money like it's it just seems like, that
0: much <laughs> it's,
1: yeah, it's just like it just it seems so insane and fake and and far away from reality right so it's like so you're think you're imagining myself again I'm like 15 in my bedroom like reading these magazines and thinking and just like how do you do this right well you learn and as you, you know as you grow into it you learn first of all that there's certain maybe options I mean you could go to NYU or or USC and then you could make try to make a great uh, thesis film and then you could get you know you would hope that you were around 21 by the time that happened and if you made a great thesis maybe you'll get hired to make some commercials or get an agent and do some big stuff but that whole path you know you it's like you got to have a 4.0 and you got to like figure out how to get into these like big universities and you got to you know, take out student loans for 200 grand. Like there's a whole other operation that goes along with that. So for me, I was like, well, my family doesn't like have any money, but we're not like poor. We just don't, we're we're not, I'm like a regular middle-class kid. It's my dad works for the post office. He makes like 50 grand a year. Nobody in my family has like a ton of money, but they can afford to send me to like a film school or a regular kind of college. So I was like, well, I'm 17. I finished high school. I'll just go right out to New York you um, know, go to film school. I went to New York Film Academy, which at the time when I went there, it was more like a freaking summer camp. It, it was, uh, you know, it was nine months of classes and stuff, a whole year. But it was like twenty six thousand or so, and um, it was not accredited. The year or two after I left there, it was like thirty four grand a year, and it was accredited. and You can get a degree and all this stuff. So it was kind of crazy. But um, yeah, man. I mean, I you know, my to, leading up to what I'm trying to say is like, you know, if, if you're the kind of person that lives in reality and you don't have access to uh, two million dollars at twenty three years old and you're gonna go make a movie, then you have to figure out like how do I make a movie? What does that uh mean? What are the actual logistical nuts and bolts of that actual thing? And I mean if you go back to my answer back about how we started Hectic Knife, that's one way to do it. I don't I'm not trying to recommend it as a process because it only happened to work for a weird movie like Hectic Knife. I mean if you're if you I have I have nothing but respect and, and admiration and like more power to you if you go out there and you write your script from page one to the end, and then you want to go make it 30 days. But again, you to, in order to do that, you might need 50 grand at a time or a hundred or a million. So, so I go back to the 16 year old me dreaming about making movies, trying to figure out how to do this stuff. And what happened was in my mind, I knew, okay, there's this like Hollywood thing. And I got movies like back to the future where the budget's like $50 million. And I have no access to that as, as myself, but I've heard of a guy named like Roger Corman or a movie like night of the living dead, where it's like somehow they managed to like make something um, that touched the masses, but on a level where they only had like a million dollars or like 500,000. Right. So you start thinking that and you're like, well, it doesn't make a difference because 500 grand might as well be a billion. They're not different. Like, I don't have access to 500 grand as much as I don't have access to a billi- to $20 million. So the concept of me thinking at like 16, 17, like that Roger Corman is like the lowest of the bottom of this industry and, and movies like, um, night of the living dead. Cause I, you know, I read John Russo's book, um, about how they made that when I was a teenager and, it, and even the bottom still seemed a lottery ticket away. So then finally, I just turned nineteen years old and I saw a movie called Cannibal the Musical, which I love that film Yeah, me too, right? Amazing. And I and I and I saw Cannibal and I um you know, I was already a fan of Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park. I already had a big uh, love for them. And I didn't know anything about the fact that they were these like filmmaking geniuses from college and all that stuff. So I saw Cannibal and that was also the first time I'd ever heard the word trauma or Lloyd coffin at nineteen. And I immediately went out, I got Lloyd Coffin's book. And it's called Make Your Own Damn Movie. It's kind of his like – he's written a bunch of books, but that's his like touchstone book. And the book lays out in very clear detail. It's like, listen, Roger Corman's like fine, but that's still like Hollywood compared to me. You – the title is meant to be taken to heart of this book. Like make a fucking movie. Like it doesn't matter if it costs you $0.10, if you don't have access to good actors – Do make it so it's supposed to be funny and have them be purposely bad. Figure out any way to like cut any corner and just make the thing because the ultimate point being if you're not making something, you're not a filmmaker. And then the whole thing – the whole entire conversation becomes moot to begin with. Like you could say I'm a filmmaker and that's my passion what I want to do. But if I can't see evidence of that, meaning there's nothing online, there's no movies that you've ever made, there's no VHS tapes on your shelf of movies that you've made, then it's simply not true. And so the only difference between an aspiring filmmaker and a filmmaker that is a filmmaker is literally just one that makes them. And I mean my point being even further, it's like the guy that has a shelf full of his own homemade VHS tapes that he only made to show his friends but they're still his own artistic craft, I mean – that guy is still just as much of a filmmaker as Martin Scorsese is. There's no delineation between the two. It, the only difference is it's a matter of PR and money and fame and all these like extra things that don't matter and don't mean anything to the art form itself. I mean, the kid in Nollywood in Nigeria that's making you know 10 movies on his cell phone a day is already a more prolific filmmaker than Martin Scorsese, but he'll probably never gain any sort of mass uh, fame or notoriety in America, but he's already more accomplished. Um, it's uh, the point being that it's all relative and the answer has to become as simple as just make movies, man. I mean, like you're the only way to really learn is to do it. Uh, you can't learn it directly out of a book. You can't learn it from a class. Uh, I recommend if you're interested in those things to do them because they will help massage your thoughts and get you excited but write something down or don't and just uh, make it. I mean, you were lucky enough now that we're at a point where um, the tools are getting cheap, as cheap as pen and paper in a way. And so, um, you know, you might still yeah, dream of like making your big 70 millimeter uh, movie or whatever. But you have if you have to start by doing it on your phone, find a way to start by doing it on your phone. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be a Baka Trump and you can just go make your 70 millimeter movie as a 16 year old and then you're fine, go, go for it. But if if you're in reality, then, yeah, just make them on your phone until you're good enough to where somebody says, well, go ahead and make the thing on your phone. And the thing is, this is like, you know, that might not that nobody might ever come. That that knock that I'm tripping off my word, that knock on your door might never come. You know, that the guy might never say, hey, I've seen all your stuff and you're amazing and here's 10 million dollars. But then you're still in the same position that I am. I mean, I'm 31. I've been doing this my entire life. I finally found. Uh, uh, I'm five years into not being broke, meaning never had a real job, never went to college, never done anything other than like paing or editing or shooting a wedding or assisting in some way. I've never I've never done any manual work or any kind of work outside of my industry, and I was completely broke until I was uh, 26. And I also didn't have a safety net, anything to fall back on. Any other skills, like I said, no degree, and also uh, it's not as if I had a bunch of like family money. So my uh, life decision very early was I'm either going to be a filmmaker or, or I'm going to be a failure. And I was content to just be a failure. Meaning, you know, if I never make a dime at this, or I never learn the craft well enough to do that or make a movie, I'll sort of just like be a pathetic failing nothing and end up, you know, with some menial job at 40 and just kind of never, you know I mean? I, it was, it was, but there was no, thing of like, well, I'll just go be like a teacher, like a normal human and have a life. It was just like doing movies or failing completely. And if you, you, you know, if you're starting out, if you're aspiring, keep in mind that there's other people in the world like me that have that attitude. So if you don't have that attitude, you're already way behind. I mean, there's a funny, famous little joke story where this guy comes up to Michael Richards on the street and he's like, you know, I'm thinking about becoming an actor. And immediately Michael Richards is like, well, you're never going to make it. And it's a joke, but he's true. It's serious, but it's also because like, If you're fucking just thinking about it, like I said, there's already a million dudes that are like living in their fucking shoes in a gutter, like acting to a wall because that's their whole life. So, I mean, be ready to understand that, um, you know, that's that's the thing that you're stepping into. But at the same time, if you you know, if you take the time to uh, develop a voice and you have you know, if you are able to sort of into it. Uh, any bit of the sort of grammar of this little art form, or even if not, if you're able to sort of navigate uh, how to create something and, um, you know, put that together, that's just as valuable as Orson Welles doing whatever he did and me doing whatever I do. I mean, it's, it's a relative thing and uh, just go make the movie, man. I mean, there's no better advice than the title of Lloyd Kaufman's book to make your own damn movie. And if you need any more detail in it, just read the book too, because I'm just echoing, um, in my own personal sort of way in my story, exactly what the book says. It's just like, just do it, man. That's, that's what it is.
0: Definitely. It's Come like, on. um, just kind of, like you said, you just got to get out in there and do it. It's like, I, um, actually just made my first uh, short film and like, um, oh, congrats, it, man. oh, thanks. But like, um, it took me forever to get it. Cause I kept thinking, oh, well, I got to get all this stuff. It's like, you know, then the the um, actress and it just said like, all right, we're gonna meet this day, and we're gonna film something, and I'm like, all right, cool. And it came out pretty decently, so.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah. Yep. Should yep.
0: also uh, mention Lloyd Kaufman. According to Twitter, is my s- official spirit animal.
1: Nice. Well, and I would also say, you know, too. I'll, I'll say this is that, um, you know, look if you're if you're a, if you're an aspiring stand-up comedian, if you're an aspiring tennis player, if you're an aspiring um, author, an aspiring uh, folk musician you are so lucky that the thing that you fell in love with got to be something that you can easily and cheaply practice all day long in your bedroom by yourself. Because if you want to be Bob Dylan, you can just wake up, play the guitar and sing for 15 hours, then fall asleep. But if you want to be Martin Scorsese, when you're six years old, you can't wake up and just be like, well, I'm going to practice like directing actors and being on a huge set and practice telling the, you know, the lighting guy just uh, fell over drunk and this thing happened and the truck crashed and I have to... Like, you can't practice any of that stuff. And on the lowest level, all you can do is, like, walk around your own house with a camera and, like, take some pictures and try to learn composition. And, you know, I'm talking about the very nuts... The basics, like, the least that you can do with nothing is, like, get your friends over and have, you know, film on your phone and stuff like that and just make them do... I mean, my point being that, like, the ability for a filmmaker to practice their craft is inherently a lot less than a lot of these other dudes out there that are lucky enough to be able to just like tell jokes at a wall for six hours a day and just practice their stuff. Right. So if you are wanting to be a filmmaker, you need to find ways to practice every day and all the time. Meaning like you should, you know, again, i understand that there's differences. Like, look, Rob Reiner is a brilliant director and he doesn't know how to work on a fucking editing machine. And I wouldn't, think he's, like, a bad director because he doesn't know how to use Final Cut Pro. I'm not trying to make that distinction. But my point being that, like, nowadays, if you're some 20-year-old kid and you're like, man, I'm trying to get into movie making, I do recommend that you just sit at home and edit all day. I mean, literally, you you take your favorite movie and you recut it for fun. You uh, take a movie that you think is bad and you try to cut it to make it better. You take a scene in a movie and change it into something else. You take a trilogy and try to knit them all together. I mean, any silly exercise. And my thing though, is that you should never be doing this stuff for, uh, work. I shouldn't, it should never feel like there's a, you know, piano teacher taskmaster, like slapping your wrist, telling you to like edit this way. You should be doing that stuff because it should be fun to you to do, because that's how you learn what it is. And you need to be practicing all the time. And so for somebody like me, I got really lucky that I found the ability um, at 25, 26 years old to be able to make a good living um, practicing the craft of, like I'm like when I go out and make a video for a client and I get a paycheck, uh, it might not be the dream come true. I might not be Scorsese. It might not be, it might not be a sexy video. But I'm getting to use and sharpen those same exact uh, knives that I'm using when I'm on a film set in, uh, my, for my artistic career. And there's no, you're using the same faculties and the same problem-solving uh, thoughts in your head and the same editing tricks and the same ways to solve the same problems and the same design, it's all part of the same thing. And so it's like, I understand, you know, you might look at artists an artist like David Lynch or something. And, you know, you'd think it's odd or begrudge the guy if he's like directing commercials to make a living, but on another side of, and yes, obviously you don't want to be like a sellout or something crazy like that. But on another side of it, there's this very important thing about like you need to be practicing your craft and your form all the time. And that's also why, Directors like Scorsese and stuff will go direct a play uh, in residency for a short time or make a bunch of music videos at a time for paychecks or do whatever else. It's like sometimes you get lucky in that the paycheck you get also happens to be the practice that you're doing. But for somebody like me, I'm the kind of person where I'm so independent. I'm out in Detroit. I'm on a, this kind of island by myself a little bit. So I have these things all the time. Like I'm going to go do stand-up comedy by myself. I'm going to go uh, just start going to local, um, you know, now that I have a little bit of freedom and, and time and my schedule and flexibility, I'm not just like, you know, starving artist guy anymore. And I have the, the freedom. I can go to the local playhouse and start meeting the actors and figuring out how you direct uh, just live stuff. And not even because that's the dream, but because I know that, you know, it's going to, that if I'm planning to do this my entire life, and I'm going to be doing it from a wheelchair when I'm 80, then it's very important for me to get on a stage with some actors and practice directing them at 35 years old, because it's going to be fun and valuable to do that. So I have silly throwaway ideas. Like what if I just staged a Seinfeld episode at a local playhouse just for fun, just to direct actors, just for no money, just to do the thing so that we're all working on stuff. I mean, it's that you, that's the kind of, um, It's just got to be part of the DNA all the time, and you have to remember that, um, you know, if you're not interested in it to that extent, there's always going to be dudes like me that are like, you know, gonna be there to remind you that we're here, you know. So you got you better get serious. It's that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, again, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody for trying to make a movie or, you know, whatever, judge their seriousness or whatever they're doing. But it's just like, yeah, man. I mean, if you're an aspiring guy, then make your own damn movie. Lud Kaufman was uh, telling the truth. Oh, yeah.
0: Wiser words were never spoken. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So um, one important question we always ask in all our interviews is, um, it's kind of a debate Corey and I have, but what is your opinion on
1: hairless cats? Uh, I have no opinion, but I will have to reference uh, my favorite artist, Seinfeld. There's a classic episode where he, like, accidentally shaves his chest because he's trying to even out the chest hair, and next thing he knows, it's all gone. So he's like worried about it the whole time, and then this girl on the street, she starts petting this like hairless dog, and she's like, hairless, that's where it's at. And uh, he gets it in his head like, oh, should I keep it now? Like He's all in this dilemma, and uh, that's probably the extent that I've ever thought about hairless animals. I guess probably because they, in reality, they probably gross me out. I mean, it's, thinking of a cat especially, that seems really gross, like, as an idea. But I also don't want to be, like, mean to the cat. It's like, I feel bad that you're a gross cat. But, like, you know, I'm a dog. I'm also a dog guy myself. I got two collies.
0: Yeah, my, my opinion is always on it about the hairless cats is it, it reminds me of Jurassic Park where when they're debating on whether or not it was ethical to, you know, bring, bring dinosaurs back. I'm oh, like, get, well, we maybe this is can. where science <laughs> went too far. <laughs> yeah. you know? We, should,
1: we know that we, sh- we could, but they never stop to think if they should. Is that what? Exactly. It yeah. Uh, yeah
0: it's like yeah. I, I just remember that scene I'm like yeah it's our hairless cat.
1: yeah yeah man yeah that's good stuff man oh yeah so- remember that, room that they're in during that conversation too not to ramble on but it's like for some reason in the middle of jurassic park the movie spielberg has them in this like really weird dinner thing thing where there's like projections of the park like flying all over the wall like it's like the yeah. camera's like sitting around this black table and like all of a sudden like it's like advertisements for the park are like flashing on projectors like behind them. and every shot is like some classic Spielbergy like you know mist in the air with like a low, slightly low with like a crazy lens flare. And then goblins like, your scientists never decided whether they should. Like it's all like intense. It's such a because well, in actuality, they're just like eating dinner before they go to like look at dinosaur. It's such a mundane thing. It's so good. That movie's so great. Best movie ever made about an insurance and in, 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 in insurance inspection.
0: Oh, yeah. Most definitely.
1: That's all it is. They're just inspecting it for insurance purposes.
0: (laughs) That's true. It's definitely true.
1: Yep. But uh, sorry to ramble on, man. um, Oh, no. It's
0: great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where can we uh, follow you to learn more about Hectic Knife and any, any other projects that you'll be working on in the future?
1: Yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, I, so I'm on Facebook, you know, my name, Greg Deliso, you can always just find me on there. Uh, I think my picture that I got on there now is me looking like a cross between Jesus and the dude, um, from Bing I got like real long hair and a huge beard right now and I'm in a robe, but uh, no, I'm always on there. I don't, I personally don't use my own Twitter. I am on there, but I use the Hectic Knife Twitter all the time, every day. So you, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on the Hectic Knife Twitter. Um, And, uh, yeah, I'm proud to say that Hectic Knife itself uh, is uh, coming out on Blu-ray on the 9th. So I don't know when this will come out, but it probably is already uh, out there in the world by the time uh, this drops. And you can um, obviously go to Amazon uh, and pick that up, of course. And then um, I just quickly, if if you will uh, allow me, I can just plug that we're obviously on Amazon Prime. uh, So you can do that. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch Hectic Knife there. And then um, we're also on Troma now. I don't know if you know this, but Troma has its own $5 a month streaming service. Um, It's totally awesome. It's got hundreds of Troma titles. They're uploading new stuff every month. We were, um, you know, a cool new release on there uh, back two years ago in 16, but uh, they're always putting up new stuff. Um, It's got all the classics on there. So if you are a Troma fan or if you're someone that's like kind of just wanting to like get into whatever they are, it's the perfect kind of introductory thing because you can really peruse the whole catalog and look. I mean, it's like they have most of their entire catalog on there. Um, so it's called trauma. Now you can get to it right from the trauma website and it's just $4.99 a month. It's just a simple subscription thing. And you just get access to like all these awesome movies and they're always putting new stuff up. So that's cool. We're obviously, you know, we're on there. Um, and of course we're on, you know, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, Letterboxd, all those places. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can find, I knife is also, we got a limited edition VHS coming out of just a hundred copies. Um, And those are um, each one is signed. They got some special features on them. There's 25 bucks and then the Blu-ray, of course. And then we have a DVD. Um, So we're pretty much across formats everywhere, I'm proud to say. And um, but the Blu-ray is really the thing. It's got tons of cool features. There's a there's two commentaries. One of them, I'm uh, high and I'm hanging out with Pete and we're watching the movie and talk, trying to talk about it. And the other one. Pete is curating a few of the actors to the movie, but the whole time they just like criticize like all my choices. Like they're the one guy is like, why is it black and white? Why didn't he do this? Why is the scene cut? Like he doesn't understand anything about it. It's really like funny and bizarre. Cause he's just like this weird actor guy. Um, so we got that thing happening and just, uh, yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. So, um, yeah, man, we're all, you know, we've got the website, Hectorknife.com. You can obviously go there. Not much up there right now, but we're uh, in the process of getting more, more cool stuff there. We got like t-shirts and stuff. But uh, yeah, man, this was a lot of fun too. Thank you a lot.
0: Definitely, and thank you for joining. Um, so there you have it, B Movie Friends: Hectic Knife by Greg De- Deliso, and it will be distributed by Truma Entertainment. Greg, thank you for thank you for joining today. It's been great having you on the fo- on the show. It's been a lot of fun talking to
1: you. No, oh, thank you so much, man. My pleasure. I really appreciate the uh, kind words, and it's absolutely my pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you.